Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 148, Peak and Twilight of the Magnificent, 1478 to 1492. Last time, we saw the infamous Pazzi conspiracy, in which a group of anti-Medici conspirators led in particular by the Pazzi banking family from Florence and, backed by the Pope, tried to assassinate Lorenzo and Giuliano de' Medici and overthrow the government of Florence. They succeeded only in killing Giuliano and provoking the bloody vengeance of the Medici faction with all the conspirators being hung or killed in the streets. Even those who managed to escape the immediate carnage were eventually found and brought back, such as Bernardo Bandini, who made it all the way to Constantinople, before being shipped back to Lorenzo de' Medici by the Sultan Mehmet II. Incidentally, the image of Bandini being returned in chains and then hung made a great impression on a young artist who produced a sketch of the execution, which you can find online. The 26-year-old, who was already making waves, came from the nearby town of Vinci. His name was Leonardo. Not only were the Pazzi and many connected to them physically eliminated, but the family was subject to a campaign of damnatio memoriae, the cancellation of any trace, such as records or insignia, that could remind the Florentines of the Pazzi. As far as the memory of Giuliano de' Medici went, aside from the poems written about him and the depictions in many paintings, he also left a little illegitimate son, Giulio, who was born a month after his father's death. Lorenzo took him in and raised him as his own, encouraging an ecclesiastical career that would take the boy to the very top of the hierarchy when he became Pope Clement VII in 1523. Speaking of popes, the pope at the time of the failed conspiracy, Sixtus IV, who had backed it, was not at all a happy camper now. Not only had the conspiracy not been successful, but the ambitions of his favourite nephew, Girolamo Riario, who, during the events of the 26th of April, had stayed safely in Rome, had been thwarted. Another nephew, Raffaele Riario, was imprisoned in Florence, and an ordained bishop, Francesco Salviati, nominated by the Pope, had been hung. Sixtus now confiscated the Roman branch of the Medici Bank and demanded that the Signoria, the government of Florence, hand over Lorenzo. They refused on a pro-Medici high, so the Pope took things up a notch by excommunicating Lorenzo, calling him the son of iniquity and favourite of perdition, and laying an interdict on the Republic of Florence, meaning that no religious functions could be performed. The next step was war. 
As you will remember, the allies of Pope Sixtus in the endeavour were Naples and Federico da Montefeltro, Duke of Urbino. Florence instead could sort of count on the support of Milan and Venice, but on both sides there was not really a huge amount of enthusiasm for the conflict. Milan was dealing with a rebellion in the controlled city of Genoa, possibly in part instigated by the Pope, and Venice was busy with the Turks. Both the Duke of Urbino and Ferrante of Naples sent troops into Tuscany. The King of Naples sent his son, the Duke of Calabria, Alfonso. They did a bit of raiding and took some minor castles, but there was no big pitch battle. As if all of this wasn't enough, an outbreak of plague hit Florence in August of 1478. Lorenzo sent his wife Clarice and their children to Pistoia, a city controlled by the Republic of Florence. They did not stay there long. Indeed, a plot was uncovered, and the leader, a certain Piero Baldinotti, was arrested and hung in December 1478. The plot was to kidnap Clarice and the children so that Lorenzo could not react when Pistoia attempted to gain independence. All of these troubles, the interdict, the war, plague, started to weigh on the Florentines and the enthusiastic support for the Medici after the Patti conspiracy started to cool down as the situation dragged on between 1478 and 1479. Lorenzo was no great strategist, and there seemed to be no immediate military solution to the war for Florence. He was, however, an adept diplomat. What he needed to do was pick off the allies of Pope Sixtus, starting with Ferrante of Naples. A first step in the right direction came on the 7th of September, 1479, Ludovico Sforza took control of Milan with the support of Ferrante of Naples. Ludovico was also good friends with Lorenzo, which was a useful connection. Then in December, Lorenzo took his big gamble and disappeared one night to head off to Naples. Now, I say gamble, but you can bet that an astute politician like Lorenzo wouldn't make a move without thinking that it might pay off. Indeed, he had an agent on the ground in Naples. Indeed, he had an agent on the ground in Naples who had informed him that Ferrante wanted out of the war. The longer he stayed embroiled in war against Florence, the more tempting it was for the French king to come down and enforce his claim to Ferrante's throne through the Angevin line. So Lorenzo spent some time in Naples trying to woo Ferrante, while the king tried to buy some time, wondering what to do. In the end, Lorenzo got tired and did a walkout. When he got back, the peace proposal had arrived. The catch was that Florence had to pay quite a considerable indemnity. But survival was worth it. That took Naples out of the equation, which took a lot of the wind out of the Pope's sails. What really sunk his boat was the Ottoman invasion of Otranto in 1480. The head of Western Christendom could hardly stick to a grudge against another Christian power with the infidels on the doorstep. What's more, to get Florence on board to help, 
Ferrante was even willing to give back what he had taken from Florence. That was it. The immediate danger had passed. Lorenzo and Sixtus in time would even become friends again, but not before they found each other on opposite sides of yet another war among the Italian powers, albeit without Florence's direct participation. The situation was this. Venice was being a big bully and looking to expand more inland. They really liked the idea of putting their hands on Ferrara, who, under Ercole d'Este, had started to exploit the salt beds of Comacchio. This was quite an affront to the salt-producing Venice, and indeed, the ensuing war would also be known as the Salt War. The most serene republic was egged on by the usual nephew of the Pope, Girolamo Riario, who had also been in on the Patsy conspiracy. He was, you will remember, Signore of Imola and Forlì, which is a hop, skip and a jump from Ferrara, and look forward to dividing up some of Ferrara's territory with Venice. War broke out and once again everyone picked sides. Venice was joined, of course, by the Pope and, surprisingly, Venice's ancient enemy, the Republic of Genoa. Rimini and, of course, Imola and Riario and Monferrato from Piedmont came along to play too. Ferrara was defended by the Gonzaga of Mantua, Bologna, Urbino, Florence and, appearing on the anti-Pope side now, Naples. This army was assigned to Federico da Montefeltro, who had also become friends with Florence. The war that followed saw some ups and downs and back and forths, and the Pope changing sides and Federico da Montefeltro dying of disease. Also, Roberto Malatesta of Rimini died during the conflict. It's actually quite an interesting war, and I'm tempted to make it into a Patreon episode, so look out for that. In the end, Naples and Venice had had enough, and the peace of Bagnolo was reached, leaving Ferrara very annoyed. Their allies had left them high and dry, and with Venice expanding further, although not managing to take Ferrara or the Comacchio salt beds. For Lorenzo, it was now time to take advantage of the fact that he was no longer at war with the Pope to invest time, money and energy in a little pet project he had had for years, ever since he had tried to get a cardinalship for his brother Giuliano. This time his focus was on his second bald son, Giovanni. In 1483, the boy got his own abbacy. He was eight years old. Can you imagine how thrilled he must have been, expecting a wooden horse or a shield or something like that, and he got his own abbacy? What eight-year-old wouldn't want one? Thirty years later, the laddie made it all the way to the top of the career ladder, becoming Pope Leo X, and I'm sure it was all due to the fact that he was a really good priest. The current job holder instead, Sixtus IV, died in August 1484, and the death of Uncle Sixtus was very bad news for Girolamo Riario. He didn't last long and was assassinated four years later in Forlì. He left his nine-year-old son, 
Ottaviano Riario, who therefore needed a regent. Now, things don't always go well with the regents, but in Ottaviano's case, he was lucky and was under the care of one hell of a regent, his mother, Caterina Sforza, who most certainly will be getting her own episode. Pope Sixtus was succeeded by Giovanni Battista Cibo, who took the name of Innocent VIII, whom Lorenzo got on a lot better with. They even became related, with Lorenzo marrying his daughter Maddalena to the illegitimate son of the Pope, Francescotto, the couple being gifted Palazzo Pazzi for the occasion. The fact that Lorenzo was now like two peas in a pod with the Pope and Florence's influence in the Romagna area increased, started to annoy the ruler of Milan, Ludovico il Moro, Ludovico Sforza. I suppose Lorenzo just couldn't win them all. More potential trouble came in 1485 from Pistoia again, where the Baldinotti family once again reared their heads, and at the time, Baldinotto Baldinotti and his son, Nicolò, attempted another plot against Clarice and the Medici children. The plot was discovered. Poor Clarice was not able to escape from tuberculosis, however, which she died of in 1488. Although he had been far, far from faithful, Lorenzo truly mourned her. Duty called, there was much to do. That same year, we got an interesting look into Lorenzo de' Medici's position on Jews, which happily and surprisingly for the times was a favourable one. He showed this by expelling Bernardino da Filtre, an anti-Jewish monk from the city after putting down an anti-Jewish revolt. This move troubled another clergyman who, not too far down the road, would play an important role in the history of the Republic of Florence, Girolamo Savonarola. The following year, little Giovanni, at the ripe old age of 14, was made a cardinal in 1489, but the nomination was kept secret until 1492. This was very much thanks to the Medici agent in Rome, Giovanni Lanfredini, with his flattering and bribery. So it was that in the spring of 1492, Giovanni de' Medici was officially and publicly made a cardinal. Lorenzo, the proud father, was there to celebrate. Shortly after, he took to his bed, ill. On the 30th of March, it seemed that he had made a complete recovery. Six days later, he was on his deathbed. In the early morning hours of the 8th of April, 1492, a few months before the New World was discovered, Lorenzo the Magnificent died at the age of 43. Grazie mille. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, starting with the first half of the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Brian J, Carrie W, Celine, Cindy M, David P, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, George V, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jacob, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeff S, Jeffrey W, Jesse and Shari, John W, and Juan Diego. 
and of course, the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, David L, Renat, David C, Oak, J, W, Sen, David, and Karen. If you'd like to get in touch, please, please do so. Hello at ahistoryofitsly.com, and you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. If you're looking for ad-free episodes and extra content, you can head over to Patreon and become a supporter for as little as $1 a month. You can do so by going to ahistoryofitaly.com support or directly to patreon.com slash ahistoryofitaly. Once again, thank you so much for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.